passage. And so we'll spend the next couple of weeks just really emphasizing Christmas, emphasizing the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and the celebration of that event, the seminal advent, if you will. You know, I, I was looking, I went to the mall the other day, and it was dangerous. To the mall, it was before the kitties were out, and uh, that place was packed. Christmas, but it had those Christmas decorations, there's people everywhere, Christmas music. But it was, it was Christmas music of a non-religious nature, right? All those Christmas songs that we, we've heard, and uh, they, they do nothing to advance the cause of Christ, but they're just there as the world celebrates Christmas. And it was interesting along the same veins, I was talking to Kevin recently, and he was telling me of how he was having a hard time finding a Christian Christmas card, and how he even asked one of the... Uh, one of the workers at a particular store, and he said, you know, I'm looking for, you know, a Christmas card that mentions Christ. And uh, Kevin will tell you more, but the clerk basically said, well, um, it's not really a religious holiday anymore. And so, you know, we, we look around and we, we see the world's view and we, we see the world's practice of Christmas, and you can't help but be saddened. And I'm not so much saddened at the co-opting of the holiday itself, but what I'm really saddened by, by, excuse me, and as we've already spoken multiple times this morning, is the utter darkness that we see around us. See, the world sings songs about peace, and yet they have no peace with God and little peace with each other. The world sings songs about joy, but they have no true joy. They have happiness based off of circumstances. They have little understanding of where real joy comes from. There's songs about hope, but few have hope. In fact, the holidays are when the suicide rates actually skyrocket. People have less hope, even though they're singing about it. You see, even though many are happy during this Christmas season... It's a shallow and circumstantial happiness based off of either a worldly altruism or even family associations. But for those that don't have much, and for those that are grieving the loss of a family member, this happiness is really exposed for what it is. It's a superficial idolatry. See, the world we live in is basked and based in idolatry. The things that people focus on, it comes from their own hearts and their desires. They've substituted the worldliness around us and the worship and pursuit of that worldliness for God and Jesus Christ. You see, that darkness in our world comes from a rejection of truth. When you reject the truth, as Romans 1 says, you substitute the truth with a lie. And anytime there's a rejection of truth, and that's what the natural man does, he substitutes the truth for what is false. God for an idol. And those idols come in many forms. It's the affections of the heart. In fact, if you ask most people today, would they say, is the world going to be a better place for my kids? Most people will say, no. And the reason I bring this up, because when you think about our world today in darkness, it parallels a lot of the history of Israel, especially in the time of Isaiah, where we're going to be looking at this morning. During the time of Isaiah the prophet, the people of Judah lived in fear and gloom and darkness, and they had little hope. 
It was a divided kingdom, the ten northern Yankee tribes of the northern kingdom versus the godly southern tribes of Judah. You see, the northern tribes had been taken off into captivity by Assyria, and, and, and Judah lived in fear. They paid tribute to Assyria, and they lived in fear of invasion. They were impoverished by that tribute, and they had little hope that things would get better. But the answer for the Israelites, and even the answer for us today, is the Messiah. And that's where Isaiah comes in in Isaiah 9, a famous passage we've heard in in Handel's Messiah. Because, believers, this is our hope. The only hope for the world is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel. And what we're going to look at today, the Messiah gives hope, He gives joy, and He gives peace to those that believe in Him. So let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 9 this morning. Isaiah 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 of Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. He shall multiply the nation. He shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of a harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of burden on staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. And the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, for fuel, for the fire. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So one thing to understand, when you, it's always dangerous to drop into any particular passage in the Bible in the middle of the book. Right? Context is king. Context, context, context. And the greatest of these is context. Right? We must remember what's going on, what happened, how do we get to this point? And one thing you must remember, when it comes to the nation of Israel, there were specific promises made to the nation of Israel. They're in a covenant relationship. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. When the Israelites stood before Mount Sinai and Moses read to them the law, they said, all that Moses, all that God says that we, all that God says we will do, excuse me. And then he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people as a sign, as a binding covenant. Now, an aspect of this covenant, there are curses and there are blessings in Deuteronomy 28. And, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28. There's blessings if they obey. God promises as their king, promises to fulfill these particular blessings. And they're, and they're, they're really great blessings. It says there will be rain and there will be, there will be bountiful offspring. There will be, there will be great, uh, great harvest. They would have protection from their enemies. There's all these great things. And he says, if you disobey, he said, I will bring a terror to you. Your enemies will terrorize you. 
right? Your, your people and your be killed, your crops will be destroyed. And ultimately, he even promises in Deuteronomy 28 that if they continue to disobey, he will take them into captivity, which happens about eight, 900 years later. So God promises. God has told him exactly what would happen if they obey in that covenant relationship and if they disobey. So one of the things when I was teaching kids at Lake Hills, previous church, I would always teach these kids whenever we would read a story in the Old Testament, anything that bad that is happening to the nation of Israel, right? Whatever it is, no rain, the Philistines were attacking, whatever it is, it was always a spiritual issue because if they were obedient to the covenant, God had promised them that none of these things would happen. And so anything bad, right? Anything evil that was happening to them, it was because of their own idolatry, disobedience, hypocrisy, immorality. It was because of their, their lack of obedience to the covenant. And so when you think about Isaiah, when we come to Isaiah, we have a nation that's divided. We have the northern kingdom that is, at this time here in the beginning of Isaiah, is, is not completely destroyed, but it has been attacked by Assyria, and part of the population is led off into exile. And so you have gloom, you have despair, Judah itself, the southern kingdom, is being threatened. But see, one of the things that's interesting, when you think about God and His judgments on the nation of Israel, I love what God says, or what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. He says, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And so if Israel will not exalt God and give Him the honor He deserves willingly, then God in His judgment will bring honor to Himself in His discipline of Israel. And so when you think about Isaiah's context, Israel is idolatrous, right? Israel, Judah is, Judah is, excuse me, is full of hypocrisy and religious activity without anything in their hearts. You see, Judah was proud, and Isaiah calls him out on that in Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 2. And even to the point where Isaiah comes to the king Ahaz of Judah, and he says, look, do not fear these invasions of, of these armies. I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign will be in Isaiah 7:14. He says, the sign shall be a virgin. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So there was to be a sign. Look, you can trust God. But King Ahaz doesn't. He doesn't trust God. Instead, he calls up the king of Assyria on his phone. Just kidding. He calls up the king of Assyria and he says, hey, I need help. I'm surrounded by my enemies, the northern tribes and, and Syria, they, they want to attack me. And he says, all right, I'll do that. And Isaiah rebukes King Ahaz and said, instead of giving you the sign of the, the Emmanuel, I'm going to give you another sign. I'm going to give you another child. And you're going to name him Swift to the Spoil, right? Isaiah chapter 8. So he gives him a different sign. And basically, it says, uh, God says, look, you, because you won't trust in me, and you tried to trust in Assyria, I'm going to judge you. And so the reason I bring all this up, all this context, right? Because you have at the very end of chapter 8, as we get into chapter 9, this, this is an indictment of Judah. And he says in chapter 8, verse 18, or, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 18, he says, 
Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. You see, they were asking for signs and wonders instead of trusting the Lord in faith. And then they were saying in verse 19, when they say to you, consult mediums and spiritists and whisper and mutter, should the people not consult their God? Should they not consult the dead? Or should they, excuse me, consult the dead on behalf of the living? So rather than trusting God, they're having no faith. They're turning to what is forbidden. This is the dark nature of the, of the nation that we're living in or they're living in. And he says, look, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, they're not going to the truth that they've got. And he says in verse 20, if they do not speak according to this, this word, it's because they have no dawn. In other words, it's another way of saying they have no light. Right? If you go away from Scripture, you turn from the light, you turn to darkness. And so you have gloom and darkness. And he, he continues, says, They will pass through the land hard-pressed, and they will be famished, and they will turn it out when they were hungry, and they will be enraged, and they will curse their king and, the, and their God as they face upward. So the consequences of their turning away from Scripture, turning away from the light, there will be famine. And it'll be hardship. And rather than turning to God in belief, what do they do? They curse their king, they blame their king, and they curse God. Right? This is the people that, 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 that's in this environment. Right? And this said, verse 22, And then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That is the, the surrounding time. That is the context of Isaiah 9 idolatry, hypocrisy, right? People who refuse to believe. You see, the Israelites had an advantage over the Gentiles in the truth of Scriptures, and they had the prophets, but yet they forsook that, and they searched for reasons behind their circumstances apart from the truth. You see, whenever you reject the spiritual darkness, or sorry, whenever you reject, excuse me, the light, you fall into spiritual darkness and idolatry. And it sounds a lot like the world we live in. And that's why I bring this up. When you reject the light, there's nothing left but the darkness. When you reject the truth, all there's left is the lie. When you reject God, all that is left is idolatry. And that's what we see at Christmas. We see a pagan Christmas. Injustice and greed and righteousness, they're all celebrated. Like the Israelites, the world needs the hope that only Emmanuel can bring. The, the Israelites need the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what our world needs. Let's look down. First of all, I want you to see that Emmanuel brings hope and joy in verses 1 through 5. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was treated in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he brings honor to gloom. So one thing I understand about Naphtali and, Jordan, or Naphtali and Zebulun are those the top northeastern tribes of Israel. Right? The main route, the main trade route would run from all the way from Babylon. It would go through Syria. It would cup down through Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Near the, near the sea. And then it would go along to the Mediterranean Sea and it would go down all the way to Egypt. It was the main trading route. And so naturally, these northern tribes would be influenced the most by Gentiles because they were closest to the Gentile lands. And so they were long looked down upon. 
But what happened is when the Assyrians came in, they, they deported thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews and they scattered them around Assyria and they brought in their own people. And you have the remnant of the land of Israel intermarried. And these became the Samaritans, whom if you remember from Jesus' day, the Jews hated. They called them half-breeds. And so when you think about this section, they, this, even in, in those days of, of Isaiah, these northern tribes were looked down upon because of their closeness to the Gentiles. When Jesus' day, it was the same way. But what's interesting, when you think about darkness to gloom in Matthew 4, in Matthew 4, it's interesting because Matthew 4 says, Now when Jesus heard that he had been taken into custody, John, he withdrew from Nazareth to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. In verse 14, this was to feel what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, right here, what we were talking about. And he quotes it, the land of Zebulun and Na- the way, excuse me, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from this time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So first thing, the first thing for these believers, or excuse me, for these Israelites, is that they would need to believe that there's going to be a blessing, that there's going to be honor provided for them in the midst of the gloom. Now, Isaiah didn't know when these prophecies would be fulfilled. And as we move along, you'll see that some of them are fulfilled in the first advent, and some of them will be fulfilled in the second advent. But Isaiah didn't understand fully how these things would take place, but it's designed to give these people hope. Hope hope in a gloomy and dark world. And he says, look, not only are there's going to be bloom to honor, but there's going to be light to darkness. Because when you walk in darkness, you have little truth. Remember, they were turning to mediums and spiritualists and astrologers, right? They were seeking their own way. There's spiritual darkness. But there's going to be light. And he says, They're going to see a great light. I love what Jesus says. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? And what Alex and Jordan were talking about this morning, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. You see, we have an initial fulfillment by Jesus as he brings the word of grace and truth to these people. This will be fully realized at the second coming. When Jesus comes back to rule and reign in Israel, this will be fully realized. Because his, his proclamation of the kingdom, Jesus' proclamation of his kingdom, brings what? It, end, it brings hope. It ends the despair. It ends the gloom. It ends the darkness. In John 3.16, you know, we, we often think about John 3.16. Right? And it's one of those things you see, uh, you see it in American ball games, right? Or you see it, you know, you go to Aussie, even Aussie games I've seen, you know, they'll have the big posters, people put up John 3.16. Well, John 3.16 is great. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? I didn't have to read it, but I'm going to keep going. But God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. But he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. 
Okay, he has not believed, what? In the name of the only begotten Son. And listen to this. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light so that his deeds will be manifested as having been wrought of God. Right? So there's a difference in this world. There's a, there's a light versus darkness. And Jesus himself brings the light. Colossians 1.13, for those of you that remember, as we're studying the book of Colossians, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. So when we think about this, when we think about the time that we live in, an application for us, right? We live in a dark world, but we have the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're out and about during Christmas season, I, in fact, I was the other day, Arden, we were, at, we were at Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, right? Or the Dirty Bird, as I've heard it's called. So we were at KFC, and I mean, we were getting some chicken, and, and Arden's asking me, you know, he asked me a question. It was a good question. It's like, well, you know, Dada, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was worded. It was a great question. It was like, why do, not why do we celebrate Christmas, but why, what's, the, what's the importance of Christmas Day? Something along those lines. And I said, well, and there's people all around us. And I said, well, we, we celebrate Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, because that's the night we celebrate what? We celebrate God Himself coming to earth as a man, fully God and fully man. And I'm telling Arden this, and I know people are listening. I said, look, we're celebrating that. We're celebrating Jesus Christ because He comes to earth. When He came to earth, not just as that little baby, but He grows up and He lives a perfect life, and then He dies on a cross for our sins. I said, that's the greatest gift of all. And I said, Arden, that's why we give presents. We give presents to celebrate the birthday of the King. Now, and I could hear people kind of listening to me as I was talking to him, and Arden asked me a couple other questions. But, you know, when you, when you go out and about, you have an opportunity. You know, Jesus says, we are, what, salt and light. We are light in the darkness. But this passage will be completely fulfilled later on in the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus has his thousand-year reign during the millennium, he will rule and reign. And Isaiah 2 says, he, the light of the Lord will shine forth. See, this passage finds its partial fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and it finds its partial fulfillment in Jesus coming to earth. I love what John says in John 12, or what Jesus says in John 12. He says that the light would not be with you much longer. And he says, he says the light is, is going out of the world. And Jesus, and Jesus is foretelling his death. But then when we believe in him, we are indwelt. What? Indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, we become part of His body, and we reflect His light in the dark world. And one of the things I'd love to do, we, we did in the, the previous church, it's on Christmas Eve, and it's easier because in Northern Hemisphere, it gets dark at 5.30. So, so at you know, 6.30, we could have our service, and we could cut off all the lights, and we would, all, we would have candles, and we would sing some Christmas carols. And it was just a great example how, how each one of us individually has its own light, but you put us all together, and it would illuminate a whole dark room, right? What, what a great picture. In the world, we're, we're just a little light, but we're radiating the light of Jesus Christ to the world, radiating the truth. Take advantage of that this Christmas season. Right? Don't, don't focus in on the stuff and the gifts. You know, don't focus in on the family time, which there's nothing wrong with that. But remember that the most important 
family that you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We want to radiate His light. But not only does He bring darkness, sorry, He brings honor to gloom, He brings light to darkness, He brings joy, right? So He brings that, that honor and that, that light is hope, right? If, you have, if, you're, if you're, going, you're going to be honored and you know there's going to be light in the spiritual darkness, that gives you hope. So Isaiah, under his inspiration, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to give these, the remnant, hope, and us hope. And then he also gives joy. Look down in verse 3. He says, You shall multiply the nations, talking about God, what God's going to do. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice and divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden of the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in battle, tumult, and the cloak rolled in blood, for will be for burning, a fuel for the fire. So there's a fourfold joy. You notice in verse 3, he says gladness or joy four times. He said there's going to be a renewed, they greatly increase and multiply their nation. Their population will increase. Now, we live in an age where the nation of Israel has, be, has been, in God's sovereignty, reconstituted, right? They've, they've been in exile from 1948 onward, 46 onward, 48, you're right, 48 onward, they've been reconstituted, okay? Now, they're still not very populous. I mean, Israel, I think I read Israel has about 6 million people, right? That's not a lot. So when you think about God, says, I'm going to greatly multiply you as a nation. He's not talking about now. The nation of Israel as he exists now is still in covenant disobedience. Right? They've rejected their covenant king. They're in covenant disobedience. They're not a theocracy with God at his head, ruled by a king of God's own choosing. They are a democracy. They're, they're a pagan nation, right? just like Australia, just like America. They're, they're not a biblically ordained Entity. So, okay. So they exist and praise the Lord, they exist, and we'll see how that plays out over the next, you know, how many years until Jesus returns. But they're not in covenant obedience yet until they accept Jesus Christ as their divinely appointed king. Okay. So they're going to increase. So this is a promise for the future. He's going to multiply their, their nation. He says they were, they, they increase their joy, increase their, their gladness says God's presence will be among them. Look at it. They will be glad in, their, in your presence. He said it'd be the type of gladness that they have at harvest. And we don't always think about harvest. I don't know if you guys have, have been up in the mountains of Adelaide and you got some of those nice cherries. You know, we, I, you go up in those mountains, you see the beautiful produce and you get excited. Oh, I got these, this beautiful strawberry or these beautiful cherries. Well, they were glad at the harvest time. And he says, They will rejoice in such a great way, it's like a victory spoil. An army destroys its enemies, and and all that's left is is the victors. All the spoils go to the victors, and and everybody's celebrating a great victory. This is going to be a wondrous time for the nation of Israel. You can imagine if you're in this dark and gloomy and despairing circumstances, and Isaiah comes up and he says, look, there's going to be a time of gladness and joy, and men will rejoice. Like victors in the presence of God. This gives you hope. Well, believers, it should give you joy as well. Right? We have a joy unspeakable. Right? In the fact that we have Jesus Christ that has saved us from our sins, that indwells us, and we know He's coming again. 
Right? We, we know He's coming. So we rejoice at what we have, but we also rejoice in the return. In, we rejoice in seeing this fulfilled in the life of Israel. This is not fulfilled in the life of the church. And he said there's a joy in freedom from oppression. That's the whole thing. If you, if you look in verse 4, break the yoke and the staff. The picture is of Israel is an is a ox pulling a cart that's overburdened. And, they're taking, and the, the person, the oppressor, is, is hitting the ox with the rod and the staff trying to make it move. That's the picture. They're being oppressed. And so they take joy in the fact that there's going to be a freedom, that God's going to break that yoke. He's going to break that staff. And he says, it's going to be like the battle of Midian. You guys remember the battle of Midian? Gideon and his 300 men, right, where God delivered the nation of Israel in such a way that only God could get the glory, right? So here it is. God is going to do this, and he's going to do it in a way that it only can be given credit to him. So there's joy. So Emmanuel brings hope and he brings joy. Psalm 46, 9, he says, He makes the wars to cease to the end of the earth and he breaks the bow and he cuts the spear into two and he burns the chariots with fire. And I I bring that up because in verse 5, he's going to destroy the implements of war. Right? You know, I was reading in a book, it's called Christmas 1945 by Matthew Litt. And it tells the story of the first, the first peacetime Christmas celebration after World War II in the United States. And what a celebration it was. He says the New York Daily News told its readers to, to go out and look in New York Harbor and they would see a fleet of warships, four battleships, six aircraft carriers, seven cruisers, and 24 destroyers parked in New York Harbor. What was special about these ships is they had been turned from weapons of war to vessels of compassion. Because they were hosting over 1,000 needy children. And what they had done is they had measured these kids ahead of time. And they had, they had specifically made navy coats and clothes and jackets for these needy kids. And those kids spent Christmas on these warships. And they were fed. And they had a warm place to sleep. You see, when you think about all the, the war materials that we have. Those of you that served in the armed forces... Imagine every one of those weapons destroyed because there's no longer a need, right? No longer, no longer a need to have to defend yourself. No longer a need to have to go to war and fight someone else. Because Jesus Christ, as King, will have all the power. And He will rule as a benevolent King. Right? All these weapons of war will be destroyed. Israel didn't have, would have anything left to fear. And as believers, during that time, we won't have anything to fear. Right? Jesus Christ right, will rule and reign. What a joy we have to look forward to. Right? We think about Christmas and we, we think about the things that await us. I love what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1 is one of my favorite passages. Uh, it's, it's one of those things I go back to over and over. 1 Peter chapter 1, it says... Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born again. Sorry, toward His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to what? A living hope, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is Jesus Christ. He said we were attained an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. 
And we are protected by the power of God through our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It means that what we are, right? We don't have our glorified bodies yet. Wish we did, right? We don't have our glorified bodies. The salvation that awaits us is going to be revealed, right? And he says, in this we rejoice what? We greatly rejoice in knowing this, whether Jesus is going to return, that our inheritance is in heaven, and even if we're distressed for a little while, if necessary, by various trials, so that the proof of our faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He returns again. And I love this, and though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Right, so we rejoice with joy that's, that can't even be put into words at the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return and He's going to rule and reign and we will reign with Him. That's our joy. In Christmas time, we celebrate joy because we celebrate God incarnate coming to earth. And we celebrate the fact that that little baby will grow up to be a man, live a perfect life according to the law, and die on a cross for our sins and ascend to the Father. Okay? So it brings joy. So Emmanuel brings hope and joy. Emmanuel also brings peace. And this is the famous passage that most of you could probably recite with your eyes closed. Right? Isaiah chapter 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Right? It says here that Emmanuel brings, Emmanuel is going to bring peace, that God will bring about the advent of the Messiah. Look at this. It says the king will be born, right? for a child will be born to us. He's already promised in Isaiah 14 that that child will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That child will be born of a virgin. It's the incarnation. So here Isaiah is in, in roughly 750 B.C. predicting an event that's going to happen in what? Zero. <laughs> Right? Or 1 or 2 A.D. Right? Y'all can do the math. Right? An accurate prophecy that God gave predicting the promised one, the promised king, the promised Messiah. Right? And he says, a son shall be given. When you think about son, you need to remember when you hear the word son that it's a title. Right? It's a title for the king. And Daniel 7 Daniel speaks about a vision of, of the mighty God and he says, the son of man comes and has given dominion and authority over all the earth, and He's given an everlasting kingdom. So Son is a title for the king. So it's, it's a divine title. So what even Isaiah is pointing to here, he's pointing to a, a fully man and a fully God, right? He's talking about the Son of God and, this, and, and, and Jesus Christ being the same person, Right? He's a 100% God and 100% man. Now, one thing you'll, you'll run across from time to time is they're modalists. Modalists will say, oh, well, God just changed forms. They went from God the Father to God the Son, and He turns into God the Spirit, and He goes back to God the Son, and He goes back to God the Father. Right? It's in the United States, I don't know about what it's called here, but in the United States it's called the Oneness Movement, T.D. Jakes, Oneness, oneness Movement. Right? Phillips, Craig, and Dean, you maybe sung some of their songs, part of the oneness movement. Right? They're modalists. That God changes form. That is not what Isaiah is teaching here. He's teaching the Son of God, 
born of a virgin, incarnation, right? A son shall be given. And he says, look, the government will rest on his shoulders. You know, I was watching years and years ago, I was watching a movie Star, Star Trek Four. I like a little science fiction. Star Trek Four and Star Trek Four is full of jokes. They kind of went off the normal pattern. They had a lot of jokes in it. And I remember reading an interview, and they said they showed this movie in the Soviet Union before the, the, uh, the empire, evil empire fell. The Soviet Union, they showed this movie, and like, people weren't really laughing at the jokes, you know, uh, and this is what the interview was talking about. They said until they came to a certain part, came to a certain part where the characters started making jokes about governmental bureaucracy. And they said everybody in the audience, the theater just started cracking up. Because that's one thing we all can joke about, and we all can understand, is governmental bureaucracy, Right? It's kind of a universal constant. It doesn't matter what century, what time you live in, governmental bureaucracy. And we laugh at it because it's wasteful. Well, with Jesus Christ, there won't be any bureaucracy, right? Because he is able to have the entire weight of the world government upon his shoulders, no sweat. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Look, the government of the world, the government will, will rest on him, right? And so Jesus Christ was born, in a babe, born as a babe in a manger, Right? He didn't come into existence. And this miraculous birth both fulfills Isaiah 9.6 and it will be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes to rule from Jerusalem and all the nations of the earth will pay homage to Him. And then we'll continue. He says that, And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is extraordinary, great, marvelous, excellent. You think about all the works of God are called marvelous and wonderful. Right? So this counselor will be God because only God is good. Only God's works are marvelous. Our God's works are wonderful. He's a counselor in that he is able to rule. He has the wisdom. He's trustworthy. When you think about Jesus Christ ruling in the future, and even now, he is trustworthy. He was tempted in all things as a man, but yet found without sin. When you go to him with your, your problems and you're struggling with your temptations, Jesus can understand. He can relate. He is a trustworthy, he is a, a wonderful counselor. And then he says he's a mighty God. El Gabor, God is mighty. I love Psalm 24, 8. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Isaiah 6, and this is a great passage. When you think about Isaiah 6, in fact, I would encourage you to flip over. When, when Isaiah is called to serve the Lord, and this is something you, you may have never noticed, but in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and the other two he flew. And one called it out to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of the trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when I, when I read that, I started thinking, that's interesting that he calls the person of God here. 
He calls him king, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the king of glory. We're talking about Jesus. And I remember John 12. And I remember John 12, 41. And it says, These things Isaiah said, and he quotes Isaiah in this passage, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 6. Jesus Christ is the mighty one. He is the mighty God. And when you want to get a picture of what he looks like in heaven, Isaiah 6. What a great, great truth. And then he says, everlasting Father. Now, there are times people say, well, does this mean that did he switched? Is he talking about God the Father here? No, no, it's very simple. When you think about the word Father, in those days, the kings were often called Father. In fact, they've got inscriptions of, of how that's used in the Middle East in, those, in that day and how the kings were, were called father. It meant benevolent. It meant loving. It meant compassionate. It's a common idiom. It has to do with the king's fatherly role over his people. We, we would even say it would be like the, the picture of the good shepherd. right? A king who is a father, he cares about his people. He loves his people. And it's interesting, he says everlasting father. It's a perpetual father. Right? He treats his people, the nation of Israel, and he treats us like a father. He loves us. He has compassion on us. He cares for us. And he says, Prince of Peace. He ensures peace for his people. You know, one thing about peace, peace is not the absence of war. All right? Are we at peace with North Korea? No. Right? Is there peace? Is there peace between us and China, technically? Eh, you know, they're, they're hostile overall right? There, there's peace is, it comes through victory, right? We didn't make peace with Nazi Germany. We utterly defeated them. We didn't make peace with uh, Imperial Japan. We utterly defeated them, and now we have peace. The Prince of Peace ensures peace for His people because He utterly defeats evil, right? With the cross, He has defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. But one day he will destroy every remnant of evil and sin in this world, and he will rule and reign, and we will have peace. He's talking about the Messianic age. There's a literal rule when the Messiah rules from Jerusalem, right? Now, as believers, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that we have peace through Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.15 says that the peace of God rule in our hearts. As we spoke about recently, we, we have peace with each other. But peace in this world will only come through the rule of Jesus Christ. You know what? doesn't matter how many one-state, two-state, six-state, eight-state solutions we have for Israel and the Middle East. There will be no peace until Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Right? doesn't matter how many strategies the world comes up with. There will be no peace. You know, it's interesting when you think about all these titles. Kings and queens in those days would take titles to describe themselves. Because if you had, whatever your name was, describe your character. You think about Queen Elizabeth, right? Henry VIII, I'll go back to Queen Elizabeth in a second, sorry. Henry VIII was originally given the title Defender of the Faith by the Pope. And then he, then he rebelled against Catholicism, created the Anglican Church. He was stripped of the title, and Parliament gave it back to him. So every king from Henry VIII onward and queen, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's title today, one of her titles, 
is still defender of the faith, right? Whether that's true or not. And I was looking even in ancient Egypt. They, would took, they took titles to describe themselves. And I read in one particular king, he described himself as the mighty bull, the one capable of planning, great in wonders, filled with truth, and son of Ra. Right? We have, what, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Finally, Emmanuel will reign in righteousness. Look down, look down at verse 7 said, there will be no end to the increase in his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in justice and righteousness. For then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So really quickly, there's going to be no end. Jesus' kingdom began when he came to earth. It's a spiritual kingdom in our hearts, and it grows as we share the gospel, right? God is building his kingdom. The literal physical kingdom takes place. When all of these prophecies will be fulfilled and Jesus rules and reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. And then after that, forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth in which Jesus Christ rules over an expanding new universe. His kingdom is constantly growing, constantly expanding both now and literally in the future. And the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. God promised David and Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, that you will always have a descendant on the throne of Israel, culminating in the one who will rule Jerusalem. Jesus is in the line of David, and he will rule and he will reign. And there will be justice. We'll live in a world full of injustice. There will be justice. Righteous. Live in a world of unrighteousness and wickedness. And I love this. And he said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal, there's two ways to look at this. Zeal has to do with, with jealousy for something. When you think about it, God is jealous for the honor that has been long due him, but this world refuses to give. But there's also a zeal. There's, there's a love for Israel that will be fulfilled in the future. There's a love for his church. Right? The Bible says that during the millennium kingdom, we will rule and reign with Jesus. Now, how that works, we don't know. But what a glorious time for us as we rule and reign with glorified bodies with our Lord Jesus Christ in some role or, or another. You see, the Messiah brings hope, joy. The Messiah brings peace. You know, I'd like to, as we, as we finish up, I'd like to read, this is, this is my favorite Christmas hymn. It's called In the First Light. And I love this hymn because it just speaks of all encompassing aspects of Jesus' ministry. It says, In the first light of a new day, no one knew he had arrived. Things continued as they had been while a newborn softly cried. But the heavens wrapped in wonder, they knew the meaning of his birth. In the weakness of a baby, they knew God had come to earth. As his mother held him closely, it was hard to understand that this baby not yet speaking was the word of God to man. He would tell them of his kingdom, but their hearts would not believe, and they would hate him, and in anger they would nail him to a tree. But the sadness would be broken as the song of life arose, and the firstborn of of creation would ascend and take his throne. He had left it to redeem us, But before his life began, he knew he'd come back, not as a baby, but as the Lord of every man. 
hear the angels as they're singing on the morning of His birth, but how much greater would our song be when He comes again to earth, when He comes again? Hear the angels as they're singing on the morning of His birth, but how much greater will our song be when He comes again to earth, when He comes to rule the earth, when He comes back, when He comes back to rule the earth. You know, I pray that as you go through this Christmas season, as you've got a couple weeks for Christmas, that you will remember what God began at the first advent. He will see it to completion. And that the wooden manger always pointed to the wooden cross. We rejoice in this. We rejoice that our sin has been forgiven. We rejoice that we've been dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We rejoice that He has saved us, forgiven us of our sins if we believe. We rejoice that He's poured His grace upon us. We rejoice in His Word. We rejoice in Him. I pray that as you celebrate this season, that you remember Jesus really is the reason for the season. Celebrate Emmanuel and look forward to His second coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for this passage that was written so many years, so many years ahead of the birth of our Lord. A son is given. Father, we we celebrate the incarnation of You, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate the hope, the joy, the peace that we have not only in our own hearts, we have among each other. We celebrate the the, the joy and the peace that will come in the future when we're in your presence. Lord, we have a living hope, and it's in you, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible, with full of joy at what you've done in our lives, bringing us together as one body. Lord, help us to celebrate this Christmas season, focus in our lives and our hearts and our affections on you, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Chad. We're going to finish up this morning by singing one final song. So I'll ask you to stand up with us and we'll sing to Jesus, You are my King. Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned, I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and rose again, I'm forgiven, because you were I'm accepted, you were condemned, I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you King would die for me. 
forgiven because you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned 